Welcome to this podcast about Hilton Head Island and the Low Country. I am Jay, your host, and today we are joined by Charlie Ryan, the author of My Life with Charles Frazier. The book is a wonderful compilation of stories shared by family, friends, and business associates of his. Charlie will share with us what it was like to put together this book, the impact that Frazier had on people and the island, and why it is important to gather content like this for future generations as we travel down 278 to Lighthouse Road. Charlie Ryan is a West Virginia native and founder of Charles Ryan Associates in Charleston, West Virginia. Charlie spent his career in journalism, public relations, and advertising. He sold his firm in 2007 and became the founding dean of the University of Charleston Graduate School of Business. Charlie and his family moved to Hilton Head in 2010 and became active in the Sea Pines community. Charlie, welcome to the show. Well, thank you. I appreciate it so much. I've listened to your podcasts and it's great to hear um, people that have been on island for so many years and their remarkable remembrances of everything that has happened there since uh, Charles Fraser opened it up essentially in the 50s. Thank you, Charlie. Share with us a little bit more about yourself and a few things you worked on over your career. As you said, I'm a native of uh, West Virginia, graduate of WVU's uh, School of Journalism. I uh, worked in journalism and radio, television, uh, wire service. I uh, was a newspaper columnist uh, and then uh, an agency owner, public relations and advertising for 32 years. And uh, then to the grad school and then into writing books. But I uh, am rooted in journalism. And once I was able to spend time to actually turn to writing, I found uh, writing completely in-depth, writing books. I've written six books now. I found that I truly enjoyed it. And one of the greatest and most gratifying experiences that I've had was writing the book about Charles, Charles Fraser, interviewing 41 people who knew him, uh, 41 people that uh, were able to tell me about him in depth. I myself never met him, but uh, I certainly learned a great deal about him in this extraordinary journey with the remarkable people that worked with Charles Fraser. How were you introduced to Hilton Head? I started going to Hilton Head, uh, I think it was 1975. My kids were small. Uh, there was uh, still a swing bridge to get on island, and uh, 278 was, uh, you know, two two lanes uh, in and out. Just fell in love with the place because it was pristine, wonderful, remarkable beaches. At that time, there were probably, I don't know, 6,000 people living on Hilton Head, and probably in a year's time, it would attract maybe 250,000 people or so compared to the millions today. Uh, so it was uh, small. It was quiet. It was beautiful. It was a tremendous place to relax. Uh, the kids loved uh, the atmosphere. It was a wonderful place to have a family. And fortunately, it continues that way today. What were your initial thoughts of the island as you know, in 1975 versus what the island is today? Well, I think the thing that uh, was uh, so remarkable when I first went on island, of course, you're looking for the rental place uh, in order to sign in and get the uh, get the villa. You drive down 278 uh, in uh, 75, 1975, and you say to yourself, well, where's the rental place? Uh, where are the restaurants? Where are the homes? Because it was all back away from the road. There was lots of uh, foliage, and you seemed to be out in the middle of nowhere, but you were there. That, I think, was the first impression that I had. And then the uh, remarkable layout of Sea Pines uh, with the finger roads that would lead to the beach. And you could be on row one, beachside, which we couldn't afford at that time, or you could be on row six, and you still felt that you were 
near the beach, on the beach, uh, all you would do is get up and walk those five avenues, if you will, to uh, to the beach. So it was remarkably planned, and it gave you a feeling of great satisfaction and a tremendous vacation of a week or two weeks. Yeah, I always remember as a kid, my dad driving around, you know, we go looking for something, whether it was a car wash or a restaurant or a store or something. And right. inevitably, it was two or three trips up and down whatever street that this thing was on because the signage was very low to the ground. It was hard to see. It was always the same color as everything else on the island, greens and browns. And and uh, he would get so mad trying to find a place. After moving to Hilton Head, you became very involved in Sea Pines pretty quickly. What inspired you to learn more about the development and how it started? Well, you know, I... Uh... Uh, have worked all my life, and I was uh, sort of at loose ends after we retired uh, and uh, purchased a home on Hilton Head. Uh, we first were uh, uh, on Stony Creek and then uh, on Red Maple. And so I was looking around for some things to do, and a friend of ours suggested that I run for the uh, CSA and ASPO boards. Uh, the CSA board, uh, the Community Service Associates Board, and ASPO, the Association of Sea Pines uh, Plantation Property Owners. So I did that, and I was elected, and I served three years there. And the last year, I was president of uh, CSA. At that time, we were looking for a professional executive because the executive had resigned. So uh, uh, Rob Marsak, who was vice president, Rob and I were heavily involved in the management of CSA. Uh, Jeannie Pierce was there and provided all the infrastructure and history and uh, allowed us to work very uh, effectively together. So I learned during that uh, three years, and especially the last year uh, at the uh, CSA board as president, a tremendous amount about the history of the uh, of the island and what made uh, CSA, uh, rather, uh, Sea Pines Plantation work. I was fascinated by Charles Fraser. So uh, coupled with that was an association that I had had over the years with Pamela Martin Ovens, who's married to Peter Ovens, who was Charles Fraser's boat captain, and he also worked as a developer for Charles. Uh, so uh, Becky and I, my wife and I were uh, at the uh, function and we ran into uh, Pamela and she introduced us to Peter and a great friendship was formed. Peter, of course, uh, came down from Canada and he simply uh, was taking a boat down, uh, I think, to the islands and pulled into Hilton Head to stay overnight. And this guy with the name of Charles Fraser walks up, starts a conversation. And long story short, Peter then spends the next uh, 40 years or so of his life on Hilton Head. So Peter and Pamela know just about everybody on Hilton Head, and certainly they know all the all the people that helped create the uh, Fraser vision. So we decided that we were going to write a book about Charles Fraser. Peter and Pamela introduced me to all the people that had worked with him. And then I interviewed uh, 41 people to put the book together. I couldn't have done the book without Peter and Pamela, and they deserve rightly to be known as authors of the book also, although it carries my name. But uh, they're tremendous people. And we worked together on uh, two other books uh, after that. So it was that collaboration that created what I think is a, is a very good book. And I've, I'm so pleased with uh, what was said about the book in the foreword. It was done by Larry Rowland, the uh, distinguished professor emeritus of the University of South Carolina. And the book has historical significance as elaborated on by him when he said the book is a t testament of our generation and a priceless gift to the future essential to anyone wishing to understand modern Hilton Head. So it was something that we put together as a group, P 
Peter, Pamela, and I, and I think it will stand uh, over the years. I found the stories that were in there in the book completely remarkable. It was fascinating. I, I really actually didn't even look at the chapter list to see who was in it. So as I was turning pages and I hit somebody new, I was like, wow, this is this is really cool. You had Jack Nicholas is in there, Pete Dye's in there, obviously all the people that that worked with Sea Pines back in the in the early days. And what I really enjoyed about the book was it was put together in a way that it really, while they were individual stories by all these individuals talking about Fraser and Sea Pines and, and the development of Hilton Head, it was organized in a way where it really told a bigger picture story. You ended the book with Laura Lawton, Fraser and the commencement speech, I believe it was, or a speech that was done at Clemson talking about her father. It just, it was a great way to, to, to close the book instead of starting with her and really painting a picture of what Charles was like. The entire book paints that picture and then she just drops that anchor at the end. I'm just really impressed with the way that you developed that. Was there a lot of coordination with you and Pamela and Peter on exactly the order of all the stories that, that went into it? Well, I think we tried to build it from the beginning uh, with uh, folks that came to the island early on. You know, uh, I love the story of uh, Stu Dawson, and I listened to your interview with him as to how he arrived. And of course, J.R. Richardson and his mother, Lois, there was hardly anything there when the Richardsons arrived on island. The emotion of the people that talked about him was something that at times would uh, bring them to tears. And quite frankly, uh, I started tearing up with some of the stories also. Uh, Mark Punteri, I can never say the name, Punteri, uh, stands out. Uh, he was the last MBA that Charles hired, and uh, he stayed. And he talks about Charles coming to his father's funeral in Pittsburgh, uh, unannounced, just walked in, and uh, then stayed with him for the day. And Mark gets uh, emotional when he talks about it, and it made me emotional also. And I mentioned Jr. and and Lois, and the first time that they saw Charlie Fraser walk in, and he loaded up his uh, uh, cart at the uh, grocery store that they ran, and uh, Jr. said that Charles immediately immediately became their best customer because there weren't many other customers around. And then I I talked with Robert Graves, and you can't forget Robert Graves. He got that uh, that great low country voice and uh, speaks in uh, dialect and it's just uh, quite a quite a gentleman he had a great story in the book about how he and charles helped one another you know they were both uh, pretty much on the ropes in the 70s financially fraser recommended that uh, robert sell his construction business but keep all the real estate he owned so uh, robert said he did that and uh, it was a life-changing moment for him and it saved him uh, he of course went on to great success in uh, on hilton head and uh, he and charles were lifelong friends there's one story in the book though that i really really do love and so with Chuck Skarmanak, who was Fraser's outside counsel. Chuck told me that Fraser was not like most developers. He never took a piece of property and put it aside from himself for himself. He could have made much more money if he did that. Chuck said that Fraser pushed everything to the middle of the table and, and <laughs> would say, show me another card. And he said Charles was uh, very litigious. He said he teased Charles and said, uh, Charles, litigation is really the sport of kings. It's going to cost you a lot of money. 
He said Fraser's real gift uh, was that he adamantly insisted when he lost Sea Pines that the deal had to protect the plantation's covenants, and that was at great expense to uh, Fraser. He could have gotten millions more uh, if he had bent his principles and uh, had not insisted that the covenants remained. So Charles uh, Chuck said that uh, Charles was a chubby little figure. He said he didn't look heroic, but he was heroic. And he said, uh, you talk about the most interesting man in the world, uh, that was Charles Fraser. And I, I, I think he summed him up pretty well. What were the challenges in gathering all the stories and content? Was it hard to get hold of all these folks? The interesting thing is, with the help of Peter and Pamela, I had the contact numbers. I would simply make a phone call if they were not on island, or I would go visit them if they were elsewhere, or those who were on island were most willing to sit down and talk. So that was the, it, it wasn't difficult in terms of uh, getting people to talk. They wanted to talk. They loved the idea of talking about Charles Fraser. I only had one person who I interviewed and uh, later said, you know, I don't think I want to be in the book. And I won't go into who that was or why that was, but uh, and I regret it because it was a wonderful uh, interview. But the they were willing to talk. It was difficult in that doing 41 interviews uh, and then taking those interviews, transcribing them, and then writing them in first person was uh, quite time intensive. So several years were spent on the uh, on the activity. I would say that it was uh, difficult in terms of spending all that time, but uh, I was retired and uh, happy to do it. Was there anyone that you really wanted to include in the book but couldn't get a hold of, couldn't find? I, uh, I wouldn't put as I, I couldn't find them or couldn't get hold of them, but uh, there was one interview that I did that I was not able to use in the book, uh, not because they did not want it to use, but because uh, the individual died shortly after the interview, and those associated with him thought that it'd be better if it, he were not uh, in the book. So that was Judge uh, Saul Blatt. When I interviewed him uh, in Charleston, uh, South Carolina, he was uh, 94 years old. He'd been on the bench. Uh, well, he was uh, nominated by uh, Nixon uh, at the request of uh, Senator Strom. Thurman, and uh, he was the individual who essentially saved Sea Pines when it was in bankruptcy, that is, saved Sea Pines as it uh, is today. Uh, he made sure the bank, he wasn't even a bankruptcy judge, but he uh, worked diligently to keep the bankruptcy hearing out of New York State and in South Carolina, and he went out of his way to uh, make certain that Sea Pines, and he had a place in Sea Pines, he built it in 1969, Fraser introduced him to Sea Pines, Fraser helped him love sea pines, which he did mightily. And I'll never forget him uh, sitting there in his uh, office in this wonderful federal building in Charleston, gray hair, a small individual, uh, his hands clasped in thought uh, as he answered questions that I gave him about uh, Charles Fraser. He thought Fraser was a dreamer. He thought Fraser thought big. He was a builder. I asked him if he thought uh, at one point because of the dreams that he had, if he thought Fraser was crazy. He said, no, I didn't think he was crazy, but I thought sometimes Times, uh, and I'm paraphrasing here, that he uh, outran his headlights uh, because he uh, extended himself uh, uh, too far. But if it hadn't been for Blatt, uh, the island would be completely different because uh, the people that were involved in the transactions that uh, came out of the bankruptcy uh, would have developed it 
differently. They would have done away with the covenants. They would have made it highly intensive in terms of the density that would uh, would occur as more properties were sold. So Black was able to keep property owners happy. He got creditors about 70 cents on the dollar. And I, I wish that uh, Judge Blatt had been included in the book. You know, he was quite uh, self-deprecating in terms of the role he played. He gave everyone else the credit. But uh, that's the reason you see Saul Blatt's name on Hilton Head now. Yes, he was very, very instrumental in making sure that that bankruptcy came back to South Carolina. And you're absolutely correct. That would have been kind of devastating if it had stayed in New York and would have changed the island completely. When you were putting all these stories together, you mentioned your interview with Chuck and you thought that that really stood out in the book. Were there any individual stories that you heard along the way that really kind of capsulized Charles and the, and the way he was? Anything that any one piece or like, yeah, that's it? I think he was too complicated a figure to say that uh, any one person was able to describe him. You know, you mentioned Jack Nicholas and uh, Pete Dye and so forth. Wonderful stories from Pete and Alice, Pete and Alice Dye. He uh, said that he didn't believe in March uh, of the first tournament that a PGA tournament could take place at uh, Harbortown. He said, I just didn't uh, believe it. And, you know, they were sitting there the first day of the tournament, uh, he was on number 13. He was uh, raking the bunker, and here came these players down the fairway. He's still working on it. Uh, so he walked to the back of the green, and uh, there were a couple of old guys there. One of them said, and that's a great hole that Jack Nicholas created. And Alice had worked on that hole, and he told the guy, Nicholas has never seen this hole. It was built by a lovely lady. One of the guys that uh, he's talking with uh, shakes his head and says, too bad uh, the, the ground crew's drunk this early in the morning. Of course, he was talking about uh, Pete. Nicholas said it was just a, you know, a real honor to uh, work with him. He said that uh, Fraser gave him his start designing golf courses, uh, that the experience at Harbortown was invaluable. Pete told me that uh, he didn't think Charles Fraser ever paid Nicholas for his work. And then uh, uh, Jack said in the interview that he, that he got $40,000, but he put every penny of it back into Harbortown golf links. Everyone that worked with him, that knew him, had a story. I mean, Kerry Corbett tells a story about uh, uh, Fraser driving his Jaguar down on the beach and uh, it got stuck in the sand. Uh, so he just gets out of the car and goes back to the house and the next morning goes down to get the car. And of course, the car was gone. And, uh, uh, you know, he just shakes his head and, uh, and buys another car. Uh, Stan Smith had some great uh, things to say about him. Uh, he would just, Fraser would just drop in and uh, start talking. And, uh, uh, Stan goes off to get coffee and comes back and Fraser's gone. Stan says he just had a short attention span. Ed Pinkney told me about uh, Trammell, the great developer that had more developments uh, uh, worldwide than uh, anyone else uh, uh, sailing into Harbortown. And uh, Charles goes down to meet him and insists that he come back to the uh, uh, to a restaurant to have uh, lunch. And uh, Trammell, I'm trying to think of his first name, but uh, uh, they start talking about how much money they owe the banks. And Charles, uh, you know, owed millions. And Trammell said that uh, he owed so much money to the banks that the banks were beholden to him. So all those stories, Don Peterson, who was the first CFO for Seapine, says that in his interview, uh, Fraser meets him for lunch and Fraser has uh, on a bathing suit and he says, let's take a walk. And uh, they walk down by the ocean and uh, Fraser says, uh, do you like what you see? And uh, Don says, what's not to 
like. And then Fraser says, take a good look. That's the last time you'll see it because he was uh, uh, going to work him, work him, work him. Uh, when Fraser would uh, take a trip, he'd go to the William Hilton Inn and uh, he'd reach into the uh, uh, cash drawer and draw out uh, a bunch of money to uh, make the trip. Uh, so Don had to, uh, in some way, record that. He said, uh, you know, it would shake his head. Don said he had two drawers in his desk uh, uh, at the bottom of uh, each side of his desk. And uh, one of the drawers uh, was with invoices that uh, they would hold, the other with uh, invoices that they would pay. And he said, uh, we always paid Wilbert Roller. Uh, Roller is liquors. Uh, Don said we needed our whiskey. So wonderful stories of that sort. That's great. I love the story about Pete Dye raking the bunker on 13 the hole that his his wife created and that's one of the stories that i just i laugh at every time and i just love the story of when the pga called pete die and said hey we want the sand in the bunkers at least six months before the tournament starts and pete's like sure not a problem and they hadn't even built a bunker or put sand in it (laughs) it was like you know it was that whole kind of attitude back then of you know screw it we're just gonna do it and some way somehow we're gonna make it happen is there one story in the book that's you know a funny story that you just recall and it just makes you laugh every time you think about it well you know i, I love greg's stories greg russell's stories it always makes me laugh when he talks about uh, fraser being so happy that uh, greg was there i uh, always have uh, a laugh when i think about eg robinson who developed uh, palmetto dunes eg said that uh, he stole a client from fraser EJ was at EG was at the uh, Plantation Club, which was Fraser's club, and uh, Fraser was uh, entertaining a guest uh, prospect, and he said he had a property picked out. Then EG uh, inter- interfered and said uh, uh, that he had uh, some lots that the fellow would like to uh, might like to see, and uh, so uh, he takes the uh, individual and uh, sells uh, the lot. Uh, and uh, Fraser was not uh, very happy, and then he refused to uh, let uh, E.G. and the people who were developing Palmetto Dunes. Uh, come to the club, and uh, Don Peterson got all over uh, Fraser because he said uh, they spent more money on liquor than anyone else. So Fraser had to uh, open the door to uh, Robinson once more. But the funniest stories, I think, uh, came from uh, Chuck Skarmanak, and largely because uh, Chuck uh, has such a great way of uh, of telling those stories. You could sit and listen to him for hours. You mentioned that Charles had taken his Jaguar down on the beach, and then got stuck, couldn't find it, and went and bought a new vehicle. Did they ever recover that vehicle, or is it still rusting out in the ocean somewhere? I think they did recover the vehicle, but it was not very operable after all the salt water. Oh, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure, yeah. I was just curious as whether or not that was still sitting out there. Charlie, give me your thoughts on Frazier and what he created there and how he made his vision truly come to life. He was simply... I think many people called him a genius, and I think that uh, is a good description. He was uh, someone that you know thought strictly outside uh, outside the box. He was in a world all of his own. Uh, people told me that he would uh, have great conversation with you one day, and you walked away thinking Charles Fraser is a real friend of mine. And the next day he would pass you by and uh, wouldn't even acknowledge you. And that was because he was 
off to something else. And uh, he was in a world of his own. He would walk in on people having dinner at various restaurants, sit down at their table and start a conversation and then pick up a fork and start eating some of their food. Uh, he would walk into homes and sit down uh, and pick up a magazine and start reading it without saying anything to anyone. And the amazing thing is people on island were used to him and he could go into a house, sit down, read a magazine, get up and go out and folks would be sitting there having dinner and never pay any attention to Charles. So this is a most unusual person in a world all of his own. He had an outlandish idea. Uh, it was bold. He was going to create a paradise uh, from a mosquito infested swamp. When he first went there and when he brought people there and he would point to various places over there i'm going to build a town harbor town and uh, they'd look over and say um i don't know about that you can hardly get through the through the brush and you know he made things happen uh, he then developed uh, what became the golden age of environmentally sound development it was followed by people up and down the uh, uh, the coast uh, and uh, he made it uh, happen by sheer will and by not worrying about financing. He thought about money. You know, the money will come. Money really wasn't something that he was interested in. That created some problems for him. He had a global financial meltdown in the early uh, and mid-70s, but he prevailed. Uh, he lost his uh, ownership, but the, the the jewel he created, not only there, but in other places, Amelia Island, uh, Palmas del Mar, uh, look at Kiowa. I mean, Kiowa is uh, an example of uh, Charles Fraser's vision. It's one of the most beautiful places in the world. And if it hadn't been for Charles Fraser and his vision, you wouldn't have uh, wouldn't have Kiowa. At least you wouldn't have it the way it uh, the way it now is. So through it all, he prevailed, and through it all, he never lost his vision. And uh, you know, he was quite a remarkable individual. I was doing an interview with David Pearson. And he was talking about yeah, David was there in the very, very late fifties, early sixties doing PR and marketing with Charles. And he was married at a small little house that they were renting. And he said his, you know, Charles would come into their house and sit down, pick up a magazine, start reading it, tear pages out of it, whatever. And, and then just get up and leave. And his wife is like, I don't think he likes me very much. And David's like, it's just Charles. That's just the way he is in all the stories. And there are multiple stories in that book talking about Charles coming into the, their house or their office or wherever he was and picking up a magazine or, or, uh, you know, some periodical and just start tearing pages out. And I'm like, what are you doing? He's like, I got ideas. Yeah. Pearson had some, uh, some great stories. Uh, he said that one, he said that they just didn't have any money. Uh, he was the PR guy. And he said, uh, uh, one day he told Charles he needed a new typewriter and Charles said, uh, go sell a lot and <laughs> to buy the typewriter. And, you know, he, uh, Pearson put uh, together some tremendous uh, stories that he pitched to uh, national magazines and they came and uh, they wrote stories and people came and it uh, was simply out of Pearson's mind. And Pearson said when he went there, it was publicize or die because they didn't have any, uh, any tourists. So Pearson played a major role in uh, making uh, Fraser's dream come true. Yeah, we have an episode with David Pearson, and I'm not going to spoil the first, you know, 15, 20 minutes of it. Um, but the first 15, 20 minutes has to do with something that happened in his career that wasn't even uh, connected to Hilton Head. And he sent me a copy of his book, and the first 16 pages are about this event. 
and it just totally blew me out of the water. You know, I've been doing a lot of storytelling throughout my career, been doing this for 30 years. Not a whole lot catches me off guard in this did because he was in a room and he was one of maybe 10 people that were in that room uh, on a certain evening. And that story is just absolutely stunning. But the way he created and the way he created creatively solved some of the marketing marketing issues and, you know, he was able to get Sports Illustrated to come shoot the, uh, one of the original swimsuit issues on Hilton head, uh, the photos that he got into Saturday evening post and the photo with the, the alligator and one of the, I believe secretaries, uh, down there, you know, on the tee and the alligator's got his mouth open. It looks like he's about to, to eat this lady, you know, the signage that he worked through, he was very, very creative in finding ways to market sea pines with no budget whatsoever. Yeah, I love the story about uh, Robert Mitchum coming to Hilton Head and they were filming a movie on uh, on island. And I think it was Cape Fear, a, a remake of Cape Fear, or maybe the original Cape Fear, I don't know. So, you know, he goes out. Uh, they're in Savannah. I'm sorry, it wasn't on island, but they were in Savannah. So he goes over to Savannah and convinces Mitchum and some other folks to come over and spend a day on Hilton Head. And he strikes up a great relationship and friendship with uh, Mitchum. Yeah, he told... Uh, wonderful stories uh, about Mitchum. So I found that David was an interview that was just simply amazing. He did some uh, remarkable things. One of the words that's been used to describe Charles Frazier is genius. And I was reading through the book, My Life with Charles Frazier. And one of the things that struck out to me, and I hate to use the term dumb luck, is a lot of the decisions he made were based on intellect and his experience. But if you look at some of the decisions that he made that just happened to work out, he hires Greg Russell. Greg's been there 40 plus years at this point. He hires Stan Smith to re- represent tennis on Hilton Head. And while Stan was up and coming, he hadn't really won anything yet. He turns around and wins the U.S. Open and Wimbledon. And, you know, is all of a sudden this huge tennis star that is under contract with Sea Pines. And that just explodes Sea uh, Pines, the lighthouse. You know, that was something that you know, a lot of people are like, okay, you're crazy. And it's turned into one of the most recognized symbols in the world and has helped create probably the most recognized golf hole in the world. You don't have to know anything about golf to turn on television and you see the lighthouse and you're like, oh, they're playing at Hilton Head. You know, it's, you know, he's just had some of these things that he decided to do or people they decide to hire just sort of using his intellect and his knowledge base to make these decisions. But some of them turned out way better than I'm sure he even expected. Well, I think it's, uh, he was an observer and, you know, he, he never played tennis, but he saw people playing tennis. Maybe that's a good idea. You know, maybe we ought to do something uh, about tennis. Uh, he, uh, I think he tried to play golf. He took some lessons, but he decided that he really couldn't play golf. So uh, uh, he gave it up, but he didn't give up the idea of golf. And you're correct. I mean, he uh, was very uh, fortunate. It was uh, fortuitous that uh, the first heritage is won by Arnold Palmer. And Arnie had been on a course that not a, he, he was he was at the lowest point in his uh, his career and he goes to Hilton Head and he wins and it reignites his uh, his career and it gives tremendous publicity to sea pines uh, so that was uh, 1969 and there's a great 
picture of uh, Fraser and uh, Arnie holding the uh, Heritage Golf Tournament trophy, and that went uh, worldwide. So all of a sudden, he lucks into something that probably shouldn't have happened, uh, but it did, and he was uh, he was quite uh, quite fortunate. I do think, however, you have to take into account that he had, uh, let's just say, he had. 10 ideas a day. Probably nine of those were not good ideas, but one of them was genius. And this would happen day in and day out. Uh, if we were to go back and track the number of things he tried and they failed, I think you could see that there were a great number of them. But he was constantly at it uh, every day, something new. And he would move from one thing to the next very, very quickly. So uh, some of it is numbers. He had so many initiatives that a lot of them were bound to work. When you mentioned tennis and him seeing people playing tennis i know that jim light was very instrumental in creating the tennis atmosphere that was on hilton head and, and adding more courses and fraser actually sent him to go do a lot of research on it so that if they were going to make this decision to expand tennis on the island and in sea pines and make the courts better with a better surface he wanted to know that the research had been done that they were actually going to make a wise decision in that so jim light goes to i believe california and florida maybe a few other places does all the research comes back and a couple of decisions were made on kind of gut feeling but most of them were made on what that research showed and that really changed tennis on hilton head well, he uh, he did a lot of foot research also. He traveled worldwide uh, to see what other developers had done. I think that Harbortown is really modeled off Portofino in Italy. Uh, he loved uh, what he saw there. He loved the color that he saw there. And he comes back and uh, creates his own Portofino with, uh, with Harbortown. He would take uh, his associates, uh, I forget how many MBAs he had. One time he had more MBAs than any Fortune 500 company. He would hire these MBAs uh, as they graduated from uh, their master's uh, degree and bring them to Hilton Head, so he had a lot of uh, new raw talent. And uh, annually, he would uh, load up a, a plane and fly them around the country to look at other resorts to see what they uh, are doing. You know, he'd go to San Francisco and he would walk the streets with his wife and walk into uh, any kind of uh, uh, store or business uh, just to soak it all up and, uh, and take it home. Uh, so he was constantly... Uh, researching. And I think he gave people the freedom to do research and let people use their own use their own heads in terms of uh, what they did uh, for Seapine's company. Some of them would flail around for a while until they uh, found the course that they wanted to be on. It was uh, innovative and it was inbred in Fraser to make certain that he knew everything he could possibly learn about any endeavor that he uh, set out upon. If you had to pick a couple or a few decisions that he made along the way that really made a difference in sea pines or for the island or even for the area, what would those be? Well, number one would be the covenants. He protected sea pines from 
overbuilding from high density. He had a master plan that uh, created a design that developed the rows of properties we were talking about, the finger roads, parallel to the beach instead of the old design of homes on stilts next to the ocean, uh, a highway between those homes and uh, the uh, rest of the uh, island, uh, etc. So it was a design that was unique and is now used in many places, but it was Fraser's idea. He put the covenants in place. They were challenged. He had to go to court to prove that they were viable. Uh, the courts finally ruled that uh, the, the covenants are the same as law. They are legal and they have to be obeyed. So that has helped keep Hilton Head and Sea Pines uh, what it is today, what they are today. He uh, was adamant that there would be no beach home sites beyond the natural dune line. He didn't want any tall buildings. He didn't want any uh, roofs above the tree canopy. He was down in the weeds about trees. Uh, he wouldn't allow anyone to cut a tree that was larger than six inches in diameter unless he approved it. He wanted homes uh, to have a view. He didn't want them to be blocked by neighboring homes. Uh, he created an architectural review board uh, that is in place today. He outlawed uh, clotheslines, uh, pastel collars. Uh, he said uh, that you had to uh, enclose the garbage and, uh, and not have it seen from the street. He created the forest preserve. And uh, the forest preserve in Sea Pines is unique. You won't find any other developments that take that many acres and say, this is going to remain pristine the way it is. There were many who wanted him to divide it, to put uh, property lots in there, to build uh, a golf course in there or two golf courses, and he refused to do it. And that's why you have uh, the wonderful preserve that people can enjoy. And in the midst of uh, a vacation, in the midst of living there, can go really back to nature and just wander, wander through what uh, has been created by God and hasn't been dis uh, disturbed. So uh, those are just a few, few of the things that he did that made Sea Pines uh, what it is today. The forest preserve is definitely a wonderful feature of Sea Pines, but the trees decisions that he made on cutting down as little as possible. I think it's kind of instrumental in the island being the way it is today. Chip Collins, when I was interviewing him, made the point that when Hurricane Matthew came through, they lost a lot of trees on the island. I mean, they're, they're, it was considerable the amount that had been knocked over by this storm. And he said, but the decision of Fraser to preserve as many trees as possible on the island and, you know, especially in sea pines, but island wide, they preserve as many as they possibly can because they had saved so many trees that once they cleaned everything up, it was very difficult to tell that a storm had actually come through because there were so many trees left. And you see a lot of islands where they cut a lot of stuff down and there's only so many trees there and you get a major storm that comes through and all of a sudden it's barren because there's nothing left. And I think the decision to preserve as much of that nature and as much of the trees as possible allows Hilton, Hilton Head to continue to thrive and not really look a whole lot different after that hurricane. Yeah, he was uh, crazy about trees. And uh, the live oaks that are there are just absolutely 
beautiful. I know when I was uh, on the CSA board, I would monitor the uh, architectural review board. And when anyone wanted to uh, build out a lot, the inspection that followed would look carefully at any live oaks. And it was very difficult for those building homes to do away with a live oak. If it was absolutely necessary for the footprint of the house, they would allow it. But if someone wanted to remove a live oak simply because they didn't like the looks of it uh, on their property, that wasn't going to happen. And uh, that's the way it is uh, today. And those trees, uh, you're absolutely correct. They were able to withstand hurricanes and they were able to preserve the footprint of, uh, of sea pines. You now live in Charlotte to be closer to your grandchildren, but when you lived on the island, what was your favorite thing to do? What did you absolutely just love to go do on Hilton Head? Well, my wife and I loved to walk the beach, and I loved to bicycle the beach. I did a lot of bicycling on the beach, and we, of course, enjoyed the 200-plus restaurants that are there. We enjoyed the, the people on island. You know, it's when Hilton Head is not inundated with tourists, when you get into the winter season, it's a different island. There's a Jimmy Buffett song that uh, talks about uh, the circus leaving town, and the line is, uh, when the circus leaves town, that is the tourist leave town. He says, uh, I go down to talk to myself uh, at a restaurant or a bar. And there is a feeling of real community on Hilton Head. And if you've got, let's say, 30,000 people or so that are living there now who are full-time residents and they're there all year long, you get to know a lot of people. We belong to Sea Pines Country Club and uh, we developed a wonderful group of friends there. And everybody shared the same experience. We all came from elsewhere, and uh, we all wanted to be in a uh, in a paradise and had discovered Hilton Head Island and had discovered sea pines. And when my wife and I decided to move to Hilton Head, we wouldn't think of moving anywhere other than uh, sea pines. It uh, is uh, a a uh, place that steals your heart. And we go back there and we visit with uh, our friends and we think about the uh, the island every day. It uh, it was hard to leave. It was a great experience. And we're close enough where we live now that we can get there on a regular basis. I rode those bike paths so much as a kid. They probably had to replace some asphalt just because of me. But um, <laughs> one thing that happened, uh, this was a few years back. My wife and I were actually riding some bicycles and a lady pulled up in a vehicle and she was just panicked. And she's like, I've lost my son. He's on a bike. And, and, you know, I don't know where he is and we can't find him anywhere. And I was like, don't worry, he'll be back. <laughs> I was like, there's a lot of, you know, it's like if your child is going to get lost on a bike path anywhere, Sea Pines is a place you're going to want to get, let him get lost because he's just riding around and having a wonderful time. And as long as he doesn't roll into a lagoon somewhere, I wouldn't worry about it. And, and you know, her son was like 12 or something like that. So it wasn't like he was a very young uh, child, but I love being a traffic cop, uh, you know, out riding and uh, you get to know the bike paths and you get to know uh, Sea Pines. So tourists would always stop you and say, I'm trying to get to this place or that place, which way do I go? So it was uh, very pleasurable to meet people and tell them uh, how they could navigate uh, the bike paths. Fraser wanted bike paths and people that lived uh, in Sea Pines at that time didn't want them. Uh, he insisted and uh, said that 
those who uh, did not want bike paths uh, would like to build a fort around sea pines and uh, have a gun turret and and uh, keep people out. He was speaking tongue-in-cheek, of course, but uh, uh, he prevailed and uh, had the great pleasure, I think, in seeing families on the path. Oh, it's it's a wonderful thing. I think we ended up telling her, look, you know, he got lost in utopia. Just go back to where you're staying and he'll be back. It's, uh, you know, he's definitely going to turn up. And, and I think we ran into him like 10 minutes later and she was talking to him. He was on his bike and was like, just riding my bike, mom. <laughs> like, yeah. So what is one improvement project that you think really changed the island or quality of life? As to what exists there Uh, Today, if you look at it island-wide, Fraser and others wanted to build a hospital. They did, and they brought uh, great medical talent there because that's where these professionals uh, wanted to be uh, located. I think the brain trust that he attracted created an atmosphere that uh, was considered to be intellectually there was a superior intellect with some of the people that were uh, were attracted to the island that certainly was uh, helpful in building out the many amenities that uh, that are there the developers that uh, were there i would say probably the biggest thing was the cross island parkway when we decided to move to hilton head i told my wife because we had been there many times and the traffic was uh, very difficult going in and out. The 278 uh, uh, had been widened, but still it was uh, it was difficult to get to Sea uh, Pines. Uh, so, you know, we go to Hilton Head and all of a sudden I see the Cross Island Parkway and we drive it and it drops us almost at the gates of Sea Pine, uh, Pines. So that, I think, was probably the most major development that I can think of that, uh, in my mind, changed the face of uh, Hilton Head Island. Yeah, I believe the Cross Island Parkway definitely be very difficult probably to even be built today. I know they had a lot of challenges when they built it, but that definitely alleviated a lot of traffic issues and considerably cut down the time to get to the the south end of the island into sea pines if you had the chance to meet charles frazier what would you say to him well i I think i'd go right to to the question you just asked i would play off that and uh, i would ask him are you pleased or displeased with the current hilton head island because it has changed there is more density on island Uh, i don't know that fraser ever envisioned that many people living there, that many people with vacation homes, all the developments that have occurred, the many uh, restaurants, stores, uh, etc. So it's changed. I would wonder what he would think about it. I would ask him uh, who had the greatest influence on his life. Such a remarkable individual. And uh, it would be interesting to hear him talk about uh, his parents, uh, his father, the general, and what he thinks he was able to glean from uh, parentage. Certainly his thoughts about his uh, brothers and uh, the effect and impact that they had on his life. I want to know from him uh, what he considers 
uh, would consider to be his greatest achievement. And then with an individual who has an idea a minute, I would want to know, what would you like to build today? If you were able to explore Fraser's mind and he was aware of where we are at this moment, it would be a treasure, I think, to see what his mind uh, would envision. And I think a lot of careers would be uh, established based on uh, what he might see in the future. And it would just be a wonderful wonderful to sit and uh, and chew the fat with him. Uh, he was uh, a great storyteller. He was able to engage people in conversation when he wanted to engage in conversation, and he was able to turn it off when he did not want to. What a pleasure it would be to be sitting in the house, and he walks in, grabs a magazine, starts reading it, and uh, walks out without saying a word. Uh, that would be quite an experience. At Sea Pine Circle, I believe there should be a statue of uh, Charles Fraser. Now, I know there is a small statue or, or a bust of Charles Fraser that exists uh, on island, uh, but I have always thought that a statue at Sea Pine Circle of size, I'm talking about uh, a statue that would be life-size, that would be uh, uh, would be uh, something that everybody would note when they would drive into uh, Sea Pines. Uh, if there were a life-size statue of Charles Fraser at Sea Pines Circle, I think it would do much to perpetuate the understanding, to perpetuate the history of Charles Fraser. Regrettably, people that are visiting Hilton Head may never know about the genius who really created the island and created sea pines. So to make certain that no one never forgets, I'd like to see that statue and a plaque that fully describes what Charles Fraser did. I think that would be something that uh, Hilton Head owes Charles Fraser. Where can people find the book, My Life with Charles Fraser? Well, it's available uh, in many outlets uh, and establishments on Hilton Head. I would have to ask Pamela Ovens, who still is uh, marketing the book uh, on Hilton Head. Uh, you can get it on Amazon also. Uh, but if you're on Hilton Head, I think you can probably walk into many stores there and many restaurants there and find the book. If you have difficulty finding it, uh, I would give Pamela a call, and I uh, think that she's uh, easily found on uh, her website, which is uh, singlestar.com. I, I think that would be one of the best ways to locate it if you can't locate it in uh, various uh, outlets on on island. Charlie Ryan is the author. The book is My Life with Charles Frazier. I highly recommend it if you have a love for the island and want to know more about how Sea Pines got started and the island got started. It's full of just wonderful, wonderful stories that it would take a lifetime to actually do a podcast for every one of those stories that's in that book. Highly recommend it. Please pick up a copy. Charlie, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. And thanks for the podcast. It's wonderful to be able to find the stories uh, within your podcast uh, interviews. Uh, it's been a great treasure for me to know about you and to visit with you in that uh, in that manner. So I, I uh, admire what you're doing and uh, hope that you continue to do it for many years. Very nice. Thank you, Charlie.